The reading this morning is Mark 5, 1 through 43. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and bruising himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea where, and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to, described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how, much, and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim it in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he, would, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd, and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told the whole truth. 
And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when they had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kirk. Y'all can have a seat. Let's pray. Father, we uh, are so thankful that you are the God who sees, you're the God who hears our prayers, and the one who heals, uh, the one that forgives our sins, that heals our sufferings. Uh, you are the God of the resurrection. Uh, you are the way, the truth, and the life. And so we, we appeal to you in this moment that you would help us to behold our good God all the more. As we study this particular text this morning, as we are are encouraged by it, challenged by it, exhorted by it, we pray that we would leave this place today with hearts that are changed, uh, that look more and more like Jesus. This is our earnest prayer. Spirit, be with, be with us in this moment. Help us to treasure Christ above all things, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, hopefully on the way in, though, you did get uh, or were handed our family advent guides that uh, look fantastic. We can once again thank uh, Jordan Winkler for an amazing uh, artwork and uh, the way that this has been put together. Uh, Bailey Voss and Liz Reck also uh, contributing to this as well. And so we pray that this is uh, something that you can take this morning and use in your family in the next several weeks, and so uh, pray that this is an encouragement uh, to you. So don't, don't leave without picking one of these Advent guides up. And then next Sunday, as we gather on the first Sunday of December, we will be uh, studying uh, for Advent uh, some of the Psalms. And so we'll be looking at what is it uh, what, are, what are the people of God called to do in terms of waiting? Because this is, among other things, a season of waiting as we enter into Advent. So we'll take a pause from Mark for a few weeks and enter into our Advent season here at City Church. Uh, but for this morning, we are going to continue in uh, chapter 5. I was having breakfast with uh, a friend of mine, a longtime friend, uh, this past week. Uh, this, this friend is going through one of the most difficult uh, seasons in a marriage that I have heard of. Um, his, his wife has uh, effectively left him with no explanation. There's been uh, no uh, desire for reconciliation on her part. Uh, and so as he uh, was kind of catching me up 
to speed or bringing me up to speed this week uh, at breakfast, he, he recounted to me uh, something that had happened to him a couple weeks ago, that he uh, was in his car and began to sob uncontrollably. He said, I've never cried this, this deeply, this viscerally, uh, this emotionally ever in my entire life. And then he said uh, a few days later when he opened the word of God, he again began to sob almost uncontrollably. And he had told me, and I, and I wrote this down uh, when he told me, he, he said that there was uh, something that had finally uh, brought him to this place where he knew that there was nothing else to do. He said that there was nothing else to do but to give this entire situation, what was going on, what is going on currently in his marriage, to give all of that over to God. And what does he mean that there's nothing more for him to do? There's nothing else to do. Well, uh, he, he has, uh, for months and months, he's, he's tried logic. He's tried reasoning with his wife. He's pled with his wife. He's been angry. He's been bitter. He's uh, given himself over at times to anxiety, as we would all imagine that we would if we were in that same situation. We so desperately want someone that we love that much to come back and he has been brought to this place, this deep, gut-wrenching place of desperation, knowing and finally seeing there is nothing else I can do but to go to God. And our text this morning that Kirk read to us and over us, so we uh, hear of three different stories of complete helplessness. Uh, we see these stories that uh, unless Jesus intervenes, there is nothing left to do. And in these stories, these three stories, we see three different people falling down before Jesus. Three stories where Jesus willingly interacts, he willingly, willingly interacts with and even touches that which is defiled, that which is unclean, only to demonstrate his power and ultimately his love. Three different stories of desperation but three different stories where Jesus shows his immense love and power. Here's the main idea if you picked up a handout and want to take notes. Jesus deals with the defiled in order to defeat demons, disease, and death. Jesus deals with the defiled in order to defeat demons, disease, and death. What I want to do in each of these stories is to uh, show us what Jesus frees each of these people from. Jesus is freeing these three people and these three stories from certain things. And then I also want to look at, at the same time, the different responses to what Jesus does. As we have observed already in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus garners all sorts of different responses by his miraculous powers, and we're going to see a variety of responses in today's passage. So first, let's get to this story, this first story of a demon-possessed man. Jesus and his disciples make it uh, across the lake. If you remember last week, we talked about that. Jesus said we were going to go to the other side, and here they are. They're on the other side of the lake in this region of the Gerasenes. This is a mainly Gentile region, and immediately a man who we read is afflicted with an unclean spirit comes running toward Jesus, and he falls at the feet of Jesus. 
Now, this man is in torment because the demons which are inhabiting him know who Jesus is. We've seen this already in the Gospel of Mark. The, the, the de- demonic powers, Satan himself, of course, know who Jesus is and even see that exclamation again. We know who you are. They also know that Jesus has power. They know that Jesus has power even in this unclean land amongst the tombs and amongst the pigs, which would be, of course, unclean for a Jewish man to be interacting with. But this man knows, and the demons that possess him know, who Jesus is and the power that he has. And we see that Jesus immediately sends the demons into a herd of pigs, and the man immediately is put in his right mind. We read that he is clothed and in his right mind. And so here's the first point on the handout. Jesus frees this man from slavery to sin and Satan. He frees this man from the slavery that he was experiencing to sin and Satan. We can imagine, if we kind of step back and think about the plight that this man was undergoing at this time, probably for, we're not told, but we can imagine maybe, maybe years, this man has been uh, in misery. He's been afflicted by literally a legion of demons. We've seen that is his name, legion. They have led him to behave more like an animal. Uh, so we read that he is naked, he's cutting himself, he's crying out with loud noises, he's scouring around the, the tombs and the pigs, and you could just get a mental picture of, of what this man's experience is. He's become a, a spectacle to the rest of the, of the Gerasenes as well. Uh, you could, uh, we've read that they have tried to, to bind him uh, with shackles and chains to no avail. They, they, likely see himself, they, they likely see him as someone to avoid, someone to try to uh, cast away from others so that they're not being interacting or so they're not interacting with him or being afflicted by this man. They, they probably see him as this spectacle, this freak show. This man is totally helpless unless Jesus acts. It's likely uh, in, a, in a room that we are in right now, I'm going to guess that most of us have never come in contact with someone who is behaving quite like this man is behaving in Mark 5. I'm going to guess, I know I haven't, ever come in contact with someone who uh, is out in the outer regions of Fort Worth or in the country, uh, roaming around with pigs, naked, screaming, cutting himself. Maybe we haven't interacted with someone displaying quite the demonic possession like this man certainly is, but we are all born being ruled by sin. We're all born into this situation where we are a slave to sin. And so we know what it is like to be a slave to sin. That's especially true for any of us that have ever experienced addictions. Maybe even now you would, you would say that uh, there is something that seems to have such a hold on you that, that seems uh, to lead you into sin over and over again. That you would, you would say that there is something that's come upon you that it compels you almost uh, without any resolve that you are going to dive back into sin over and over again. When I read 
this story of this man, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of even my own story where uh, several years ago was afflicted, afflicted with uh, sexual addiction, uh, with sexual sin that had such a grip upon me that I kept going back to that old well over and over again. I kept returning uh, to vomit like a dog. There was no relief. There was no self-control evident in my life. And in a way, I wanted this sin. In a way, I wanted to be free from it, certainly, but there was part of me that wanted this sin. Ed Welch calls this, uh, calls addiction uh, voluntary slavery. Maybe you can relate. Voluntary slavery. And we see uh, there in verse 10, look at verse 10. And the man begged him earnestly, meaning Jesus, to not send them out of the country not sending them, meaning the demons, out of the country. There is a sense that this uh, a man wanted these demons gone from him, but at the same time, he didn't want Jesus to send them out that far. He still wanted them kind of around. Maybe occasionally he would interact with these demons or run into them from time to time. But that, friends, is the insanity of sin and addiction. It's it's the desiring of, of that which is, is not holy. It's the desiring for, for that which has a control over us. And so only by God's grace uh, in my life did I see that there was this point where I reached uh, very much like this man, the, the, the time in my life where I fell at the feet of Jesus and only by his grace have found lasting sanity. How does this this man respond to the amazing work of Jesus. How does he respond? Well, we read that he displays a desire to be with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. We find him clothed and in his right mind. In the Gospel of Luke, we get the added detail that he was sitting with Jesus. Sitting with Jesus in his right mind, fully clothed. And we read later that this man desperately wants to stay with Jesus. Uh, when Jesus was getting into the boat with the disciples, this man comes to Jesus and begs him to stay with him. And Jesus uh, says, no, I'm going to send you back into the Decapolis to preach and proclaim the mercies of God to your friends. And this man does. This man obeys the word of God. This man who himself was a chain breaker over and over again, many times over, uh, trying to be shackled, uh, people putting him in chains only to break free from the chains. This man, who was a chain breaker, has met the ultimate chain breaker. This man has experienced what one theologian calls the expulsive power of a new affection. We see someone who has come to life and have desire for Jesus Christ. He has a new affection, a greater affection for King Jesus. He's self-controlled. He's obedient to the Lord. And so maybe you can relate even to part of the story. Maybe there is something even this morning that you would claim has some sort of power over you, that uh, you desire to follow Jesus, but there's something that keeps holding you back. There's this power that's come upon you. And here is the encouragement from this text. There is a reality that Jesus and only Jesus can free you from slavery. He can free you from the slavery to sin, the slavery to even Satan himself, that there is no match to the name and power of Jesus Christ. 
but we see a different reaction from the, the Gerasenes, a much different reaction to what Jesus does. In fact, they display a desire to get rid of Jesus, where this man has experienced such a transformation in his life. He wants to be with Jesus. The people, the Gerasenes, want him as far away from them as possible. Look at verse 15. They see there at the end, when they see this man who was, uh, had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind, they were what? Afraid. They were afraid. And then in verse 17, they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. The question becomes, why? Why would these people beg Jesus to leave? After all, they've, they've, in some form or fashion, wanted this man under control for years. They've been trying to control this man to get him from uh, yelling out and cutting himself and walking around like a crazy person. And yet, here he is in his right mind, clothed, and they're like, get out, Jesus. Why? They've seen this radical transformation, and yet they, while counting the cost of following Jesus, have decided to reject him. In this case, the counting of the costs by these people are actually financial costs, because likely what's happening here is that the pigs, the 2,000 pigs that the demons were sent into, uh, were the, the way of life for these herdsmen. For many of these people, what that represented with 2,000 pigs going over the cliff was an end or a great detriment to their financial well-being. They were not willing to risk possibly leaving behind their current and familiar lifestyle. They counted the cost and decided that the cost wasn't worth it. And so they want to get rid of Jesus. And we see this reaction to the gospel all the time today, do we not? Especially when money is involved. Uh, when a financial well-being, when your status or uh, title or power is threatened, or when Jesus is calling you to lay those things down before him. I'm reminded of the story that we'll get to several months from now of the rich young ruler, this one who's so close, who desired to be with Jesus, but in the end, his wealth, his riches were too much. He didn't want to give everything up for Jesus. Reminds me of a quote from American novelist Upton Sinclair. He says this, quote, It is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. Is this where you are today? Is this where, where you're wrestling? Even in this moment, are you sensing that Jesus is calling you to lay everything down before him, to count the cost, maybe even literal financial cost, and you find yourself wanting, you find yourself at this crossroads. You've seen the mighty works of God. You've heard the gospel over and over again, and yet where the seed seems to have been sown, there's uh, thorns and weeds that are growing up around it. There's this fear of the cost of following Jesus. We get into the next story. 
Next two stories actually deal with a desperate woman and a desperate father. We read about this man beginning in verse 21 named Jairus. This is uh, what we're told is one of the rulers of the synagogue there in Capernaum. Uh, He is a man of prominence. This is someone who had a great level of authority in the Jewish culture and around in and around the temple and the synagogue. And what we find is this man of prominence, this Jewish leader, a religious leader, falling at the feet of Jesus. He's pleading for his help because his little girl, 12-year-old girl, is apparently near death. And Jesus, we read, agrees to go with him. It doesn't seem like it takes Jesus any, any hesitation to go with him. But then, all of a sudden, we're taking up, taken up into the story with this woman. This woman who uh, desires to even touch the edge of Jesus' robe. This is one of the things that Mark likes to do over and over again. We start with one story, then immediately we're taken to the story of a woman, and then we'll eventually return to the story of Jairus. But Mark wants us to see how these two stories are very closely related. In verse 25, we read about this woman who has had a discharge of blood for 12 years And we read that she makes her way through the throng, through the crowds that are huddled all around Jesus just to touch the hem of his robe. And we read that immediately she is healed. Immediately the blood dries up. But not only that, Jesus wants her to know something about her healing. He wants her to know that it's her faith that has made her well. Here's a second point on the handout this morning. Jesus frees the woman from shameful suffering. From shameful suffering. This is a a remarkable story. This woman has not only suffered physically, she has suffered most certainly socially and emotionally. She would have been ostracized in the Jewish community. We've talked about this before when we talked about the leper back in chapter one, that uh, this woman, because of her disease, had to be kept at bay at all times, likely hasn't experienced the touch of another human being in at least 12 years, is what we're told, as this started 12 years ago. Here she is. Imagine the scene here in this great group of people clamoring around Jesus. It's a very familiar theme we've seen with Jesus, people desiring to be around him. This woman, likely with her face covered, because if anyone would recognize her, what they would immediately cry out is, unclean, unclean. So this woman, trying to be as low-key as possible, Desperately trying to find healing, fighting the impulse that there would be no way for Jesus to pay attention to her. But all the more, clamor, or with all these people clamoring around Jesus, she fights, fights her way to touch the edge of his clothes. We can imagine how heavy-hearted this woman must have been. We talk about desperation. This woman, for 12 years, has sought healing. We read that she has tried everything to fix what was going on in her body, and it's been made worse, we read, by doctors. She's seen several doctors. She's now destitute. She's poor. She spent all her money on doctors trying to fix this problem, and there's still no healing, and there's nothing left but Jesus thought occurred to me uh, this week as I was reading this story. Christians 
uh, we, we see this all the time in popular culture, Christians are criticized and accused for our lack of compassion, especially in this area and this topic of transgenderism. What Christians are accused of over and over again is that we lack compassion for young people or teenagers who are struggling mightily with uh, gender dysphoria, with uh, feeling like they're trapped in the wrong body. We're told as Christians that we are actually hateful for not allowing doctors to fix this confusion in a child by either giving them hormone replacement therapy or even operating on their bodies. We're told about the high suicide rates among such children and teens, and that the most loving thing for us to do is to allow these things to happen. Friends, we obviously should have the utmost compassion for anyone, especially a young person who, in the midst of the world that we live in right now, uh, afflicted with our own sinful flesh, hearing from even demonic forces, this world flesh devil complex, our heart would go out to anyone who feels like they are trapped in the wrong body, who feel like they need their bodies fixed in order to find healing. We have the utmost compassion for such a person who undoubtedly is swimming in a sea of confusion and despair. We need to see, friends, that just like this woman in Mark 5, seeking the ways of the world will only make matters worse. And so in this instance, doctors who would aid in transgendering, uh, parents who would spend uh, tons of money on this Do not make it better. In fact, the suicide rate is even higher for children and teens who have gone through gender reassignment surgeries. And so all of this, I bring all of this up uh, to just highlight the, the, the horrible tragedy of our time, the confusion, the heartache, and yet, and yet there is hope. There's hope for such a young person who, even right now, might be struggling with these types of thoughts, who really do not know what to make, heads or tails, of what's going on with the fact that they feel like they're trapped in someone else's body, and yet there is hope, and his name is Jesus. This this woman in Mark 5 has come to a point where she knows that there really is only one that can truly help her. There really is only one. And so she finds her way to him and touches his robe. And again, we, we see right away that she is healed. She feels it right away. Immediately, the blood dries up and she perceives that she is healed. She knows she's healed in that moment. And yet, Jesus also perceives that something has happened to him. He perceives the power has gone out of him. And this is where this story gets uh, particularly incredible to me. We, we read that Jesus stops to look for who touched his garments. Here's the deal. Jesus, he isn't content. He isn't going to settle for us sneaking up behind him and, and just touching the corner of his clothes and then retreating back into the background of the crowd. No, Jesus wants to find this woman. He wants to find us and look us in the eye and tell us face to face that what? That we are healed. That peace I bring you 
And we read with great fear and trembling, this woman, after she hears Jesus said, who, who touched my garments? Who was that? It's, this woman comes uh, more than likely terrified of the consequences of being someone who's unclean in the midst of all these people and touching Jesus, and yet we see that she falls to his feet and tells him the whole truth. And what does he say to her? Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Faith says, I need hope beyond human resources. That's how one pastor describes faith. Faith says, I need help, and I need hope, and they are beyond human resources. This woman who has been for 12 years afflicted with this disease, ostracized, socially cast out, being destitute after seeing doctor after doctor, she's found hope beyond human resources. Have you ever been in this place? Have you ever been in this place where uh, you have come to the end of yourself, maybe after years and years, and the only place that you can find is at the feet of Jesus? Have you ever been here? Of course you have. We all have been here at one point or another. Maybe none of us dealing with exactly this, of course, but, but we have all been, if we're honest, in this place of incredible desperation where we've tried human philosophies and psychologies and we have desperately sought after the horizontal, but we have yet to truly lay everything down at the feet of Jesus. And yet when we do, out of faith, he looks to us and says, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And that's exactly what this woman displays after this encounter with Jesus. This healed woman displays peace from Jesus. She has a peace from Jesus. She came to him in faith that uh, perhaps he would be able to physically help her. After all, this was her premier problem, this disease he could physically heal her, but as we've read over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, that he wants to give her so much more than that. We should note the response of the disciples in the story. We talked about how uh, there are going to be many different responses to what Jesus is doing in these stories. And what we see with the disciples in this story is that they display an exasperation toward Jesus. You see that there because they are uh, in a hurry. There's tons of people surrounding them. They're with Jairus. They're hearing that his daughter is near death. They're trying to get to this house where his daughter is lying, and there's people all around, and they're annoyed at Jesus. They're annoyed. Why are we wasting our time with this? There's tons of people around you. Why are you asking who touched my robe? We can relate to the disciples in this moment, can we not? I know I certainly can. There's, there's, a, there's a task list uh, waiting for me. There's this punch list that I have. I create one every day. Maybe you do as well. Got to tick my way through it. Even in the midst of this story, we, we can be sympathetic with Jairus and, the, and Jairus and the disciples in the sense that there's a, there's a near death. There's a girl near death. We got to get to her. And yet Jesus takes the time to look for the one, to look for this one that has touched his robe. The response reveals the disregard for the one. And to my shame, how often do I do this? Again, 
it's, it's in these moments where we should be reminded that we serve a God, that we have a, a, a good shepherd that we read leaves the 99 to find the one. Now he goes after the one. And here indeed, we see that again. Jesus is incredibly personal. Jesus has the time for you and for me in the midst of a throng of people trying to get his attention. Jesus is hyper-personal. There's a lot more we could say about this particular story. It's a beautiful story. And, and now we're immediately put back into the story of Jairus at the end of our passage. We read uh, that, we, that he gets a report from those that were at the house that it's too late. They get a report that the daughter is now dead. And they say it's not even worth bothering the teacher's time anymore. It's no, not even worth coming at this point. This girl is dead. But Jesus is not thrown off by this at all. They continue on to the house all the way into this room where this 12-year-old girl's dead body lies. And Jesus, now touching death itself, takes this body, takes this girl's hand and whispers to her, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately she got up and walked. So we read about Jesus freeing Jairus' daughter from death itself. Jesus frees Jairus' daughter from death itself. And we read her parents are overcome with amazement. Can we imagine the... The journey of emotions that Jairus has been on in the past several minutes, that here's a desperate father, uh, this one that is well-respected in the Jewish community, a religious leader, one of the rulers of the synagogue. He obviously has heard about Jesus. Maybe even he himself has seen some of these miracles of Jesus over the past several weeks. Uh, he's probably also heard about how the other Pharisees that he's hanging out with wants to kill Jesus. And so here he is in the midst of a culture that talks about killing Jesus and a desperation as a dad finds himself at the feet of the Messiah. I don't know if we can measure his humility in that moment. After all the temptation to dismiss what Jesus is doing or to think that it's a work of Satan himself. And here, this religious leader finds himself humbled, prostrate on the ground before Jesus. And Jesus is willing to help this man, just like the woman. He's willing to look for the one. And he does so because of Jairus' belief. In the Gospel of Luke, in this same story, Jesus tells Jairus, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be made well. Jairus displays belief in Jesus. He displays belief in Jesus. And he displays a belief in Jesus against all odds. Again, going against the culture that he was caught up in, this culture of the Pharisees who had nothing but uh, contempt or dismay about Jesus, having needed to wait even longer while Jesus healed this woman with the disease. You can imagine the patience that Jesus is teaching him in this moment. And now he's even having to face the actual death of his daughter, and yet amongst all that, and despite all of that, he never stopped believing in the power of Jesus. 
Once again, though, we see another response, do we not? This time, it's the response of the people that were in the house. Uh, the response that they have is ridicule of Jesus. They display a ridicule of Jesus. They laugh at him. They are stuck in unbelief. They're essentially saying, she's dead. Why are we, why are we bothering with all of this? This is ridiculous. This girl is dead. What a ridiculous thing to say that, that she is just sleeping. Let me ask you a question. Is there someone right now who is spiritually dead, dead in their sin, no affection for Christ, no fruit of the Spirit? Is there someone right now that you know that if Jesus came into this room right now, if Jesus walked into this room and told you that this person is about to come alive, that you wouldn't be tempted to scoff at the words of Jesus? Is there someone that you can think of, maybe someone that you know, that if Jesus were to say that person is about to come to life, that we would not also be tempted to laugh at him? Do we not believe that Jesus brings dead people, maybe dead people who have been dead for years and years and years, do we not believe that Jesus is the one who brings dead people to life? Do we believe that? So here's the gospel in Mark chapter 5. Jesus did not walk among the tombs only. He went into one. Jesus shamefully suffered and bled, afflicted with the disease of our sin while on the cross. Jesus did not just touch death, he died. He became unclean to make us clean. He became weak to give, to give us strength. He was stripped naked and treated as an animal so that we would be clothed in his righteousness and found in our right minds, actually to be found with the very mind of Christ. Dead in a grave for three days, the Holy Spirit whispered to Jesus, I say to you, arise. And immediately he did. Jesus walked out of the tomb, and now we have life in him. We see in Mark 5, the desires to be with Jesus, the desires that we get from peace from Jesus, and to have belief in Jesus, all of these things, to be with him, to have a peace from him, and believe in him are signs of life. All of these are signs of life. They're signs of Jesus' power over death disease, and demons. So as we close, let me ask a question. It's a question that I've been convicted of this week as I've been in this passage. And the question is this, what will it take for our first response to sin and suffering of this world, what would it take for our first response to be, there's nothing else to do but to go to Jesus? What would that look like for you and for me? For our first response to our own sin, to the affliction of our own suffering, to the world, our flesh, and the devil, what would it look like for our first response to be, I need you, Jesus. There's nothing else I can do but go to you. But will we go to Jesus if we have it all together? You see, these are 
three different stories of three different people who were in ultimate desperation, who were brought to the end of themselves in need and poverty, knowing there's nowhere else to go except to the one who has the power to help them, to save them. Will we go to Jesus if we have it all together? Either some of you really do have it all together or you're pretending to. That's the reality we find ourselves in this morning. The kingdom is for the poor and needy and desperate. That is who the kingdom is for. And if that is where you are, if you are in this moment, on this Sunday morning, in a place where you would say, I am poor, needy, and desperate, that is such a good place to be. In fact, that is the, the best place to be. The best place to be is at the feet of Jesus. The best place for you or for I to be is falling down before Jesus because it is for us, the poor and the needy and desperate, that this kingdom is for. This is the king who has come for you. Uh, primarily, these stories are not about people finding their way to Jesus. This is primarily about Jesus coming to them. Jesus goes to the tombs to cast out demons. He comes to the woman to heal. He comes to Jairus' house to show the glory of resurrection. And he has come for you. He's come for you. Are you at his feet? Are you poor and needy at the feet of Jesus? I know there are many of us who uh, hear these stories. We uh, perhaps even in this moment, although encouraged uh, by, by what the Lord is able to do, uh, that the Lord has in these stories miraculously healed and cast out demons and have even brought a dead person to life. Uh, I know that there are many of us in this moment who still have quite a bit of heartache because we read this story, all three of them, and yet we know that we still suffer. Some of you, maybe even this morning, we know that there's still addictions. We know that there are still unwanted desires. We know that at times there's lingering despair. We know there's chronic pain. We, we know there are cancer cells still afflicting bodies. There's infertility. There's mental health issues. We will watch people we love die. We will go to funerals this year. We know that we will die as well. How do we read a story like this then and be encouraged with those realities still a part of our life? Well, we know that some things are not yet healed. We know that some things will heal gradually over time. But here's the encouragement. We know that all things will be healed ultimately. All things will be made right on the day that Jesus comes back. And while all those things are true, and they are gloriously true, the most important things in your life and in my life are healed immediately. The most important thing and the most important need in your life is healed immediately when Jesus calls us to himself in faith. We are saved in an instant. In that instant, where we are given new hearts, we are recreated, we are justified and sanctified, we are united to Jesus Christ, those things happen the moment we are believed. We are saved from our sins, we are forgiven fully and forever, and life emerges from death. 
those things happen immediately. If you pressed me to find the most important word in Mark chapter 5, it's an interesting exercise. What would you say is the most, most important word in Mark chapter 5? If you pressed me, I would say it's found in verse 34. In verse 34, the most important word in Mark chapter 5 is daughter. Daughter. This, this woman has been addressed with the greatest title she could have ever imagined. You see, it's at this moment that her biggest problem, her being an unnamed woman, now the daughter of the king, her biggest problem immediately resolved. Our biggest problem, gone in an instant, when our Father in heaven turns to us and says, Son, daughter. The love story of the gospel of grace heals immediately. As the hymn goes, marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we do stand in amazement. We are uh, marveled by and overwhelmed by your loving grace. This grace that is so undeserved by a sinner like me, as one who has indulged the flesh over and over again, the one who walks in the way of the world and is afflicted by Satan himself, that you would come willing to enter into our existence, risking defilement in order to save us, to display your great power over the darkness, over disease over sin, and you have made a way. And so help us to remember that in an instant, we are healed from our greatest problem, which is sin, now that we have now been adopted by our Father, now that we are caught up with Jesus Christ, united to him, being conformed to the image of Christ over a period of time, and we know that we will see you one day when you come for us. So I pray that you would comfort my friends this morning who are still in the midst of lingering sinful desires, of confusion that this world continues to disciple us with over the very powers of the darkness. Will you help us where these things are still present in our lives, where we're tempted to not have faith, where we're tempted to not believe? Will you help our unbelief and grow our faith all the more into Jesus Christ? We love you and know that you are able to do this and so much more. And so we do ask in faith. In Christ's name, amen.